herbs More than one reason I use the herbs Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Yay. Radio. We are live uh, on tape, live on tape, coming to you from the Hot Stove Kitchens here in downtown Seattle. Uh, we are located on the second floor of the beautiful Hotel Andra, 4th and Virginia, downtown. And uh, I couldn't be, I know Craig, who owns the hotels in France right now, so I'm a little bit jealous about all that. But uh, anyway, we're here. Terry, Chef Terry is on the road. Tell, tell me where he is again. He's in Wyoming at a family reunion. At a family reunion. I didn't know he had kin in Wyoming. Kathy's family, ah, his wife's family. There you go. I hope he stopped on the way through Montana to say hi to my buffaloes. Uh, it was on his list. You know, I, I know. have owned part of a bison ranch in Montana. I can't wait to meet them. Yeah, they're very sweet, and, and they make great chili. Chili? Yeah. What about jerky? We have turkey, we have uh, black bean and bison chili that you can buy in some Costco's around the country, and uh, it's, uh, it's called Rome Free Ranch is the name of the company, the ranch, and so yeah. When are you going to bring us some samples? Well, I did, I had them like two years ago when I developed the recipe, I had many samples, but I just, uh, it's not sold locally right this minute, it's on the, it's in Texas and Colorado and San Diego and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm going to order some. Rome Free Ranch, Rome Free yeah, black bean and bison chili. Nice. Boy, it's so much is going on, I'm not sure where to start. Uh, we have the 30th anniversary of Sleepless in Seattle happening uh, this week. Isn't that crazy to think? I would have guessed longer because we opened Dahlia Lounge in 1989. And I remember when Nora Ephron, oh, I know what it is. It just took a while for the movie to come out. When uh, Nora Ephron asked me if I, she could use the original Dahlia for one of the scenes in the movie and she was willing to pay me money what and we were just about we time. were just about broke we were just about ready to go under at that point and she paid me like ten thousand dollars if i remember Beautiful. right for a three-day stint and paid my staff it was unbelievable and so much so needed at the time uh we were struggling uh, uh so it, i have very fond memories of sleepless and if you remember in the movie, it's when uh, Tom Hanks was on his first date uh, that, with that lady who had the weird laugh. And they were sitting in, and uh, they used the upper level, our upper dining room, as where the spy was sitting. Remember, she hired a private detective yes. or something to... A private investigator. To see if he was for real or... Yes. And so, yeah, so he was up top. And then Philip Mahalski, who still owns a restaurant in town called Nell's, Wonderful uh, guy. They plucked him. You know, all the waiters wanted to get the speaking part, you know, to wait on Tom Hanks. And he was nice to somebody in the crew in the back on the movie set. And he was so he was nice to somebody. So they said, you're going to be our waiter. So the waiters just flipped that, that Philip, our cook, oh. got to be the waiter at the table. <laughs> and for years, uh, he had one little line to say. And for years, he's gotten a residual check from that movie. No way. And I think he still gets like 100 bucks every year or something like that. Lovely. 30 lovely. years later. Isn't that crazy? Well, um, we were reminded of it because of the story in Seattle Times that Moira McDonald and Jackie Variano have uh -huh. coming out about the 30th anniversary. And it revisits the places in the movie. Um, and it's yeah, a really cute the article. Athenian, the Inn at the yeah. Market, the, the House on Lake Union. I'm going to rewatch it. Which I it. think recently sold, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, It's a fun movie. Uh, I got no speaking part, but I got to save my business because of Sleepless in Seattle. So. And you got a friend out of Nora Ephron. And I did, for years. Yeah. Your relationship yeah. continued. And it's, it still does continue. We have a cookie in the bakery. 
she had asked me for the recipe for our peanut butter sandwich cookies, uh, which I think I stole or adapted from Boucheron's uh, uh, peanut butter sandwich Uh-oh. cookie. Oh. And anyway, we when we put it into our bakery book with our own version of it, uh, we named it the Nora Efron. So I called her. I said, Nora, do you mind if we name a cookie after you? And she was went a little bit quiet and said, I would be honored. Isn't that sweet? The sad part is she died like eight months later of her blood issue, and yeah. uh, I didn't even know she was sick. So yeah. was, my buddy uh, Ed Levine in New York knew, but I did not. So congratulations to Sleepless in Seattle for making it this long. Pitmasters Ed and Ryan Mitchell are going to zoom in. We're going to talk about uh, Ed Mitchell's barbecue book, and of course you have their ketchup here too. Which I is do. Interesting. I, th- I think uh, through his, he's got some diabetes issues, I think, and so he's been working on making products with less sugar in them no sugar this has no sugar just sweetened with fruit and carrots and uh apples ah interesting so look forward to trying that uh but i love the book and and when we talk about it it's going to be hard for me to honestly talk about barbecue a little bit because there's some serious stuff in this book about his life as a black man and going to vietnam and uh trying to live in in this world in a, in a thoughtful, lovely way. I mean, he's, it's really beautifully written, uh, and I, I can't wait to finish some of the stories. Each recipe kind of has a story between him and his son and sometimes even his 92-year-old mother. I know. I so. think that's why more people need the book, in addition to the recipes, is for the black heritage in America. Yeah, it, well, it's just cool. You know, we've been celebrating Juneteenth this last week, and it just really hit home to me. Chef John Walkey. Yay, John. In the house for the second uh, hour. Here from Mischief Distillery and Restaurant over in Fremont, where the old Terrell's dog food plant was. Remember that? Very vividly. Chef, were you around for Terrell's? No, he no, wasn't. That's how I always think about that place, because Pamela's business right next door was Red Hook. And then, and then Theo Chocolate, where mm-hmm. you worked at both of those. And then the big dog food plant was there, and it became a like a, a hall, like a... I know we've catered there many times, and now you have a little restaurant there, too. Yeah, exactly. The big silos. Yeah, isn't that funny? Uh, it's Pride Month. Uh, we're having a big pride down at uh, Celebration down in front of the Dahlia. It comes right down 4th Avenue, and there's going to be some It's some a great activity. day to be downtown. Special things over at the Dahlia Bakery for Pride. Looking forward to that every year. Cheesecakes and cookies. Uh, Seattle Times has a People's Choice competition running. I'm just going to do a little shout out for ourselves. (laughs) Dahlia Bakery and Lola are nominated. If you love them, please vote for them. And then um, uh, it's Pesto Party. It's a pesto party without the basil. And here's the thing. Pamela, you you, you stretch sometimes. I know it. For no good reason sometimes. Maybe not. (laughs) It's basil season, and there's nothing like a lovely basil pesto like pescolina verde would make from the pike place she's the one who taught me how to make pesto she's probably you too yes with a flat leaf parsley is about a quarter of it and then the rest is 75 percent basil but you insist on gilding the lily by adding different kinds of pesto and we're going to talk about exactly. that later in the show so it's a jam-packed we're looking forward to hanging out with our guests here in the audience or waiting awaiting breakfast they're getting started on a blueberry muffin if you want a ticket you can certainly buy one at hot stove society show Dot com and come join us some morning for hot coffee and blueberry muffins and we would love that chorizo and mm, so much deliciousness it's time now to go come back soon on Cairo Radio it's the Hot Stove Society Show Kitchen on 97.3 FM
We're back in this hot stove kitchen here on Cairo Radio. It's uh, Tom Douglas. Pamela Hinckley and sitting in for Terry. Sitting in for Terry, who's out uh, roaming Wyoming. Roaming I like it. Maybe he's going to go to a rodeo or something. That'd be good. There's a lot of cowboys in Wyoming. Uh, Sean uh, McFadden is here, our technical director, and we've got a lively audience, including some uh, Chicagoans who have made it all the way here on I-90. Maybe we can, they can be, as a family, our trivia participants. Oh. I, would hate, I would hate to take them down as a family. It's embarrassing, you know, to take all of them, all of them out in what, at one time. But, you know, maybe we'll think Big about talker. that. Uh, there's a lot of endless creativity happening with summer pasta time dishes. Summertime pasta dishes. Yes. And uh, you seem enamored. I read all the food press. You know, yes, you all, do. All of them. What's your favorite? Online. I love Epicurious. I love Food 52. New York Times Cooking. Come on. New York Times is my favorite. Yeah. Food 52, the problem with it is that I always get credit card receipts because they pop in little things that you can buy. That you have to have. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But the, um, the amount that the food press writes about pasta, you would think that's the only thing people are eating in America. So it, it's an important staple. And I think uh, having a palette of versatile ways to season it, you can change it from your comforting, rich winter pastas to like really sprightly, bright summertime pastas mm-hmm. and a lot of the recipes i'm seeing just are so lemon focused and so herby and they there's kind of a switch for summer pastas to the smaller ones so your vegetables can really uh hold center stage and my favorite is orichetti mm-hmm. what what little shape do you like well i love that orichetti being the ear you yeah. know it's, it's kind of and my favorite brand of Orichetti, I don't know the brand name, but I know where I buy it. I buy it at Chef Shop over there on Elliott. And they have beautiful AP flour. Rather than just semolina flour, they have AP flour Orichetti, which is a finer grind uh, on the flour. And it makes for what I feel like is a more homemade taste. And they have it both in buckwheat and in Buckwheat is and my regular, favorite. We should all go there in right my after regular the show. flour. Yeah. But anyway, so orchetti is, you know, the classic is broccoli rob with Italian sausage, right? Oh, that is your favorite. That is my it's favorite. got broccoli. But um, I was hoping, could you inform us on if you're going to make a cold pasta salad versus serving it warm, would you treat your pasta differently no. in, in cooking time or uh, saving some of the pasta water for your sauce? No. <laughs> I, it's probably time I wouldn't use the extra pasta water. So I would, I would take, I cook my pasta to where I want it. The problem is with the summertime pastas and cold pastas is when you put a vinaigrette on it, the pasta itself, just like it does if it sits in a pot of water, wants to suck up all the moisture that's in that uh, in that vinaigrette. So the and we vinegar, don't we? We sort of want it, but you don't want it like a dried up pasta salad. You know, you want it to be a little bit. Saucy, so it takes a lot of extra oil. This is my point. Not extra water, but extra yeah. oil uh, and extra dressing. It really just sucks it, sucks it right up. So I also tend to, if I'm going, say, down, you know, you and I both live on that Blue Ridge, North Beach area where we have our own beach, and you can take a, a, a lunch or a, a summer picnic down to the beach. Which I, I always try to get you to do, and you don't like eating in the sand. I can't figure it out. I can't figure out why I don't like eating in the sand. I, I don't get it. You know, if we were smart down there, we, you know, we're all 
neighbors, we could all build a boardwalk down there. Because <laughs> on the East Coast, you eat up on the boardwalk. You don't eat in Very the civilized. so much. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, so I like to bring my dressing for my salads or for my pasta salad or anything like that in a separate jar. Just yes. save a mustard jar, save a mayo jar, and just bring it down and shake it and dress right when you're having your picnic. And to me, that's the best way to have a pasta, cold pasta salad. Because there's a couple of things that happen, right? If you put dressing on the vegetables too soon, it's the vinegars start to eat away at the vegetables. Uh, It dries up into the pasta. The pasta gets flabby. And next thing you know, you have a less than stellar pasta salad. But keeping your pasta from when you cook it to before you dress it, you want to oil it. You want to oil it a little bit. You also want to keep it cold. You know, the things that you, there's some surprising things out there in picnics that cause health issues more than what you think. So you think when you're going down, like your chicken is going to be the one, like you take cold fried chicken or something. But really some of the things that cause the most health issues where you get food poisoning are beans, rice, pasta, things that you've kind of let sit because you don't think they're dangerous. And so they are the ones that kind of happen to create problems. So it's just something to be aware of. Oiled and cold. Oiled and cold. Uh, Some of the great combos that I saw... Caramelized zucchini. That helps zucchini, doesn't it? Anything, it anything to zucchini helps zucchini. <laughs> exactly. So that, I'm going to try that. Many of them had burst cherry tomatoes, mm-hmm. which I love the idea of just getting that explosion mm-hmm. of seed. Burst cherry tomato with shrimp and marjoram. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Well, marjoram is one of my favorites, but people don't what? like it because it's uh, it's too fragrant for them sometimes. It's very fragrant. And it's a little bit like tarragon in that people get like, what is that? So uh, I think it's fabulous. It's what those, it's the herb we use on my favorite pizza at Serious Pie, which is the fennel sausage and cherry bomb pepper pizza. We sprinkle fresh marjoram on it when it comes out of the oven, not before it goes in the oven. Yeah, Because you just want the heat the from the pizza to bloom the marjoram uh, after it comes out, right? So, uh, but... But yeah, that is fantastic. I love uh, in pasta salads feta cheese because it's salty. Too. It stays nice and crumbly. It's dry, and like if you make a little orzo salad with uh, feta, so the first thing I would do is I take my raw orzo, pop it on a cookie sheet, put it in my five hundred degree oven, four hundred degree oven, whatever it is, and toast it uh, just like you would uh, Israeli couscous or f- uh, farfalle. What is that? What's that toasted? Frigola. Frigola. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, Orzo works the same way. You toast it, you kind of get a marbled uh, golden brown a little bit, you know, a little bit of white, a little bit of brown, and then you cook it. So now you've got just a little extra flavor in your orzo salad. But feta, tons of mint, olive oil, uh, either you love preserved lemons, they're not my favorite, but fresh lemon zest with lemon juice. Sweet peas are out right now. Perfect. Asparagus is gone, sadly. Yes, I know you can buy asparagus. Don't. <laughs> Sweet pea time. Uh, anyway, so that's my kind of idea of a, a perfect pasta salad. Lots of acid, lots of olive oil, but a salty feta uh, on there. And if you go to the grocery store these days, you know, honestly, when I first started cooking, you could not find sheep's milk feta. It was all coming out of Wisconsin, cow's milk feta. Now there's tons of sheep's milk and goat milk feta out there that has so much more flavor and is a much better product than what we remember. Totally. What? Where do you land on um, other seafoods with your summer pastas? I saw crab with snap peas and mint. Perfect. That sounded like crab heaven. is very volatile. You just have to make sure it's icy cold. Icy cold. And then the one that I kept to make 
um, this weekend was sweet corn and scallops. Mm. What do you think about that? Mm. Too early for corn, maybe, in no, Washington? No, but I think if you go to the store these days, you'll see that uh, Gerard and Dominique have like a little smoked scallop that's all cooked and ready to go. Brilliant. And so just using a little bit of that smoked seafood in your pasta rather than... Because when you cook fresh scallops, they want to bleed, right? They want to just uh, drop all of their moisture, especially the ones that are pumped up with trisodium phosphate. But, you know, dry-packed scallops, even if you sear it, it's going to want to bleed a little bit. So I like the idea of a smoked seafood in there. And it'll be, uh, say, fresh, in, in quotations, longer. Thank you, Chef. All right, so much to talk about today. Ed Mitchell's going to join us next. Uh, his new book, uh, Barbecue, uh, is out with Ed and Ryan Mitchell, the pitmasters from the Carolinas. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. When you finish, what do you got? Lots of things to eat. Like spaghetti or a getty, pantaletti and linguine. Some capelli or an elli, vermicelli, farfalline. Barbecue, barbecue. There ain't nothing I'd rather do. Lay around here in the bed with you and eat your barbecue. I like pulled pork. Lord, I love making bacon. When I see a Boston butter, can't get enough. Love my basting sauce. So get a firm grip on these ribs now, baby. You can lay my sausage in your bun. I can watch you gobble it up. Barbecue, barbecue. There ain't nothing I'd rather do than lay around right here in the bed with you and eat your barbecue. All right, we're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo Radio here in downtown Seattle. Everyone's got breakfast in front of them. Uh, it's just about the right time for lunch on the East Coast, so we've decided to interrupt Ryan Mitchell, a pit master. Back on the East Coast, he's got a, a book out called Ed Mitchell's Barbecue. I believe uh, Ed is your father. Is that right, Ryan? That is correct. Absolutely. That is correct. And uh, I think it's interesting, you know, my notes here uh, that Pamela wrote, our producer, who's uh, also on the mic, said that uh, the entire family, uh, you're on a powerful and compelling journey to build a multi-generational legacy. Uh, and I think that's interesting. As I have a daughter now that's joining our business, never expected that to happen. I can tell you that we were all surprised. Went to become an attorney, as, as, but I had never considered uh, in my business world and in my, I guess, in my business world is my life also about the multi generational effects. Uh, your story is a little unique, though, because you, um, you, as a black family, you faced all kinds of struggles that I never faced. Uh, and I think going through the Vietnam War that your pops went through, and there's just so many interesting tangents to your life story. I appreciate you acknowledging that. Yeah, we've, uh, you know, we've been on this journey for about 30 years commercially. So, um, you know, it's it's been uh, a roller coaster of, of joy and bonding and, you know, uh, all, all types of challenges. But, uh, you know, it brought us closer together as a family. And barbecue, you know, has a unique place here in the Carolinas. So, uh, you know, it has it has its own challenges uh, in a unique position here. So tell us about your pops and yourself and how you two bonded. I mean, it's not the easiest thing to hang out with your dad all the time. <laughs> at least, no, at least in my family it wasn't. But, hey, man, I, listen, you know. You know, me and my dad, we make a great team, but man, we had we had a lot of work to do, you know, to, to, to 
keep our bond tight and not let business get in between, you know, uh, in between us or our family. But, you know, we've been, um, my grandparents owned a little small bodega grocery store in Wilson, North Carolina in the late eighties. And, um, you know, never envisioned really kind of getting into the cooking aspect of it. We just sold fresh meat and cheeses and drinks and, you know, typical, um, you know, farm market stuff to the neighborhood. And so upon my grandfather's passing, you know, my grandmother's love language is cooking and hospitality so she would you know still cook these elaborate meals inside of the uh inside of the little restaurant for family dinner and as we would stop by uh in the evening my dad and my two uncles would you know we would just eat family dinner right there at the restaurant before closing up now again you know my father is also a vietnam veteran spent some time in boston uh, working with Ford Motor Company as well. So his journey back home to Wilson, you know, was kind of uh, uh, unique as well, uh, similar to my path. You know, things didn't work out for him in corporate America, so he had to come back home uh, kind of to the safety of uh, a family in the hometown. And so, you know, piece by piece, man, we decided to make a run at being in the barbecue business, in the restaurant business, not by choice, just out of necessity. Uh, we were trying to figure out how we were going to save our property and save our you know, our estate, you know, having lost my grandfather. And so we cooked the whole hog one day uh, just for a small family gathering. And, you know, word got out to the neighborhood that we were selling it. Well, it wasn't for sale. We were just making dinner for the for the next couple of days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, customer by customer, you know, person by person, you know, we kind of were able to build a reputation in the barbecue business uh, and slowly converted our grocery store into a grill, into a small restaurant, and then into a, a barbecue, uh, you know, a barbecue empire that we're trying to keep going right here today. Well, it's such, so, an, <laughs> such an inspiring way to get started through necessity. Uh, it is, what are the, necessity is the mother of invention, exactly. but at the same time, uh, you had that little bit of legacy of your folks and your grandfolks uh, right. to kind of uh, build on, which I think is super important. I have the same with That's my mom. Her. She's a great cook. My grandma, yeah. yeah. Relationship, uh, you know, now as we get to the next level, you know, me and my dad, you know, maybe maybe similar to your story with your daughter, but I, you know, I was 13 uh, when we entered the restaurant business. And at that point in time, you know, it was just, you know, what we used as a, a chore. It was a chore. It was my job. It was my summer job. It was my day job. After football practice, before, you know, sports, before anything, I had to put in my time at the restaurant because, you know, as family, we were, you know, employees and we were working together. And so, you know, once I graduated high school, man, I was over it. You know, I swore I was never going to come back. And I got up, you know, I got off to college and I was going to play football and take on corporate America and do all these amazing things. And I had cooked my last piece of chicken, dropped my last piece of hush puppy. I never, ever wanted to see another deep fry again in my life. You know, so uh, I was over it. And then I uh, get to college and fortunate enough to be able to graduate with my degree. And uh, I try and take on corporate America. And, um, you know, that's when things started to get, you know, really real for me as far as how I was going to, you know, narrate my my path to, um, you know, making a living for myself and just kind of creating some security as far as how I was going to earn my income, you know, and take care of my family. So uh, 2011, after about seven years, eight years in corporate America, I got laid off um, from, you know, due to the uh, huge financial crisis that trickled in from 
eight, nine, and ten. Uh, and so my company laid off two thousand employees and then offered us a chance to either go to Singapore or take a severance package. <laughs> and I wasn't going to Singapore. <laughs> wow, those um, are two polar opposites, aren't they? Polar opposites. Two wow. polar opposites. What town were you living in at this point? I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh, and, okay. Uh, and my, my firm was based out of New York and, and also London. So I was traveling, you know, um, around the country and, and, and overseas at least, you know, once or twice a month. But I was based in Raleigh. And so uh, our operations and, and our trade floor uh, department was here in Raleigh and our trade floor was in New York. You know, you kind of just get punched in the face with that reality, you know, and uh, life is all about how you respond when you get punched in the mouth. You know, everybody, everybody's a fighter until they get punched, right? Mm-hmm. For me, it wasn't, um, you know, it was just dealing with the emotional side of, hey, I've prepared myself my entire life and I've educated myself and stayed out of trouble and did all these things. And yet and still, you know, a company has the right to, you know, uh, remove your livelihood, you know, in such a way that's so, uh, you know, devastating in the moment, in the moment. I made a decision at that time to really kind of focus on entrepreneurship and focus on just kind of helping my dad uh, reposition our brand and kind of push our family kind of to the next level as far as how we were going to be able to control our our own narrative in the, in the world of barbecue and in, uh, in the food space. And so, um, that's what we've been able to try and do, man, so far. So far, so good. I mean, the book is fantastic. This is another layer of your business. I know uh, when I first wrote uh, books for, you know, for about our restaurants, it was mm-hmm. just part of the circle of life of a business. You know, you don't make any money selling books in Miami if you're a Seattle right. restaurant. Right. But if somebody in right. Miami is coming to Seattle and they choose to eat at your restaurant because they liked your book, you start that circle of business life that is more sustainable. Same with our spice product lines and our barbecue sauces and uh, yes, sir. You're you're doing uh, a similar things, probably on a larger, grander scale than I ever did. <laughs> no, man, that's that, that's that was the objective. You know, the book itself uh, is seven years in the making. So, you know, we, um, you know, once the project kind of evolved past something I thought I was going to be able to jot down from a notebook, you know, uh, it, it got really it got really serious really fast, and we had to put together a real team. <laughs> so, uh, Miss Zella Palmer. Our co-author there, she did an absolutely amazing job with uh, with captivating our life and our life stories, and and uh, and following us around, and um, and really making sure we kind of did the research and the historical aspect that went along with each recipe. Well, that, I didn't have one of those. I just never let the truth get in the way of a good, a good story. <laughs> we love the stories. Uh, so uh, we're talking with Ryan Mitchell. Uh, he and his dad, Ed Mitchell, uh, of Ed Mitchell's Barbecue in North Carolina. Uh, he and his dad have got a new book out. Uh, we've talked a little bit about your life story. When we come back, let's talk a bit about uh, making a home barbecue or successful. I know I was just in North Carolina. I wish I had gotten to your place. I was playing Pinehurst and the group of golf courses around there. But um, let's talk about uh, how to make uh, some of our home barbecuers the most successful they can be. When we come back, that's uh, the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. This is our review of barbecue. Barbecue, but make sure it's vinegar. 
We're back. It's the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo. Thank you for joining us. We're going to continue our conversation with Ryan Mitchell. He and his pops, uh, Ed Mitchell, have a book out called Barbecue, Ed Mitchell's Barbecue, and they have a restaurant in North Carolina. And I was enamored. So let's just put this away. I love the book. It's a read. It's not like a typical cookbook. It's a real read. It's a story, a family story. And uh, I would buy it just for the read, whether it came with recipes or not. As I'm reading and being a chef... I was like, every picture kind of drew me into another recipe that was interesting to me. While whole hog is probably how you became most famous, Ryan, uh, it's not likely that a lot of people in their backyard at home here in Seattle are going to find a whole hog to go butcher and and barbecue. So let's (laughs) stick to a couple of things that uh, people can be successful with uh, from your book. And the first one that struck me was brisket is like the hottest barbecue ingredient right now. It's yeah. even big for a lot of people because a, a real whole brisket is between 10 and 15 pounds, depending on the size of the animal. Um, That's right. And so so it's a challenge for a lot of folks. It's not like a, a baby back rib or something that is a little simpler process. Right. Your backyard brisket, though, to me was like you just took all the all the worry out of it. It's just as simple as it could be. And uh, if you could talk us through that for a minute, that'd be lovely. Yeah, man, you know, so growing up here, obviously, Carolina's, you know, pork is king, whole hog was king. And so when we got, when we opened our restaurant, you know, beef and brisket was still fairly new as a, as a barbecued item here in the, in the South. You know, we, we, we didn't really, uh, we didn't really cook that. That wasn't our reputation. And so our recipe for cooking brisket was not rooted in the competition uh, network, right? So right. it was rooted in, hey, you, you, you take a really good cut of meat and you season it very well and you put it on the smoker and you kind of let it ride. And really, you know, the complexity that comes along with brisket is, 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 is for people who are really trying to turn it into a, a showpiece, you know, to win a competition. If you just want some good eating and some really good food, we try to tailor our recipe, you know, to kind of take in the fear out of people who are, you know, worried about what the presentation of it is going to look like. Right. We didn't get into, we didn't even get, we didn't even get into barbecue through uh, a, a presentation showcasing of, um, you know, ju- judgmental style of sport cooking. You know, we were just eating good food and we're trying to cook good food and eat it. So, right. If I could quote uh, you from your book, you write in the book, we cook brisket to eat, not for its presentation. We didn't enter the barbecue game for aesthetics. We cook barbecue to feed our community. However, my uncles, Aubrey and Stevie, always had the mindset that they could compete with anyone, which I think is half the battle, right? That confidence. And we've always been confident in our barbecue. So people get caught up in that uh, competition world sometimes when it's not necessary. That's right. That's right. So we wanted to, you know, stick to some very basic ingredients, man, and, and, and show people how to, uh, you know, still keep the flavor in there as we wrap it, you know, in the, in the foil and we put it back on the smoker. But it's really just having a relationship with time and temperature and, and, uh, and knowing what that means to you know, a piece of meat, you know, specifically right. brisket. Yeah, you you never, you cook it at 225, you never take it over 205 by the end. I think the trick that a lot of people don't do, which is your wax paper technique, uh, when you take it off at a 165, wrap it in this uh, wax parchment and then put it back on until it's 205. So you're getting not necessarily a whole lot more smoke, but you're getting a lot of internal steam from the juices of the meat itself. That's right. You, you know, 
and the, the, the first from 100 to 200 degrees, you know, you're already going to you're going to get all the smoke you can get out of it unless you add more wood, you know, from the yeah. first four and a half, five hours. You know, your last couple of hours is really about creating a, you know, a self way to tenderize, you know, a self steaming method. And so we use that method on there and it works out really, really good. Um, you know, as far as keeping the flavor and, and also giving you a chance to get, you know, that bark on there. Like you like people like it. And then the other uh, process that you do, that's a little different than I've seen before is you take your, your baby back pork ribs, you get them to where you want them, pull them yeah. off and put them in a, on a, like a cookie sheet with some vinegar right. and cover it with plastic wrap. And, and steam right. them for ten minutes on the vinegar. That right. is, does that just infuse that vinegar into the meat? Is that why you're doing that process? Yeah, we we do that. We we do that to infuse the vinegar in the meat, the seasoning, and as well is also a way to kind of um, again self tenderize. You know, using the 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 the, uh, the steam from the meat and the smoke to self tenderize it in the pan. And so it, it was a method that we would always use to keep the fresh ribs in our backup uh, humidifiers before they went on the line in the restaurant because mm-hmm. keeping them online, you know, and, and, and um, you know, depending on how business was for that day, they can get dried out really quickly. Right. So we kind of, we kind of created a, a, a self-steaming scenario for them to sit. So we were always pulling out fresh ribs as they went right on to the uh, front buffet line. And important, so, importantly, you do put them back on after that and dry them off and get that bark back. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. Okay, I know you're sick of the fryer. You said you'd never go near a fryer again, but dude, <laughs> dude, the, the the picture of the chicken uh, with the fried chicken with the pepper honey on top uh, looks pretty Man. darn delicious. That's still my favorite uh, food item, but you know. Oh. So what's the secret to a good fried chicken and keeping it nice and crispy? For us, man, it was, it was the batter. You know, we use a, um, a a dry batter, and then we kind of, you know, my grandmother's recipe is using the cast iron skillet. The, you know, if you're home, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can fry chicken. Now you have air fryers and, and, and all types of attachments, but if you can put it in a cast iron skillet, that's going to save you. God, no kidding. <laughs> my mom always hit hers in cast iron too but but uh yeah. the thing that was interesting to me also on yours is that you're going direct out of flour into the into the hot fat and right. um i often think that it's got to sit for a minute and adhere to the meat but it really doesn't no it doesn't it doesn't at all i mean to be honest you can drop it right in the grease and it really gives you know you want to start frying it really before the batter gets a little bit too much moisture on it and so that's what my grandmother does she boom you know, drops it right in the grease, right out of the right out of the flour, and it keeps it um, allows the skin to crisp up a little bit faster. Uh, we have only have a short time, but I, I I told you, Ryan, that they have your ketchup in front in front of them, yes. our audience, and I served it next to a popular uh, commercial brand, and I want to tell you tell us how you made it or why you made it. Yeah, our ketchup, uh, you know, True Bay Foods is our line of ketchups and barbecue sauces and, and uh, mustards as well. We took out all of the added sugar and we recreated a, a line of products where we use a, a serum of um, butternut squash and carrots. It's kind of like it's one of my grandmother's old Brilliant. recipes where she would she would sew down vegetables and fruits and use the, and, and, and use that as a sweetener in, in some of her foods. So she has a bunch of different combinations. The butternut squash washing the carrot you know for, for the ketchup man it just it just worked and it's so the bomb Ryan. it's, it's the bomb. bomb it just worked i thank you guys so much for that we, yeah. we worked long and hard on that uh yeah. with a little bit of apple 
that was a theme around our house. You know, we didn't have the ability to pour, you know, uh, my grandmother didn't, didn't have the, wasn't interested in pouring, you know, buckets of sugar in, um, in any of our condiments or any of our, our sauces or preserves and things she was making up. She would just use the natural flavor of the veggie and the fruit. Yeah. Together. It's fabulous. The company so is called true, <laughs> true made foods. It's veteran owned. And, um, uh, we got to cut this off, Ryan. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. The book is called Ed Mitchell's Barbecue, and uh, Ed and Ryan are both the pitmasters with Zella Palmer as uh, your co-writer. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. It's been a, a pleasure. Pleasure's mine. You guys have a great day. All right. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you. Got another full hour of deliciousness coming your way. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo, 97.3 FM. She was killing me in that miniskirt Skipping rocks on the river by the railroad tracks I guess I'm watching the morning I guess I'm watching the night I guess I'm watching lunch Here we go, it's the Hot Stone Society <laughs> Show on Cairo Radio Oh, Tom's our party motivator today. I miss Chef Terry when I have, when I have to force people to clap. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, hopefully, you're in your garden. Uh, you know, it's that beautiful time of year. Pamela, I was uh, had dinner in your garden last week. What a delicious looking garden you have. I know. Look at this bouquet, man. This yeah. is just like one. It corner. seems like you're going more flower heavy this, this more year. More flower heavy. Yeah. I gave up on vegetables. You can buy vegetables. <laughs> you can buy vegetables. <laughs> uh, Pamela Hinckley is sitting in for Chef Terry, who is on a road trip to Wyoming. Uh, he's wandering Wyoming with uh, uh, Kathy, his wife's family, and uh, hopefully he's having a, fun, a fine time. And I need to give him the address of my bison. Yes. Far, or, I'm, I'm inv- it's not mine. I'm an investor in a bison company ranch in Montana. Maybe on the way home, he can wave to He can pick bison. up a bison for us. Yeah. That'd Might fit in the back <laughs> of, his, of his Honda. Honda you have Honda. a big backyard. I mean. Uh... Yeah. Those are big critters, those bison. Uh, hey, we have a full hour to go. Uh, we're going to, of course, finish our show with Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by... Rub with Love Spice Rubs and Sauces. Uh, we're going to talk to John Walkie of uh, Spirited Cooking from the Pacific Northwest fame over there at Mischief Distillery and Restaurant. And then we're also going to jump in on pesto. Yes. You have a bee in your bonnet on I do. pesto. And, it's, of course, it's not traditional pesto because you can't do that. Um, before we let John go, I'm probably going to ask him for a tip, too. Cause really? Based on looking through his cookbook, I know he's adventurous with his herbs. John, scoot right up to that mic there, if you would, uh, as close as you can get, because our listeners deserve your velvet fog. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best with that. All right. <laughs> John Walkie, Chef John Walkie of Fremont Mischief, who with uh, owners Mike and Patty Sherlock, and James Beard Award-winning author James O'Freoli. That's a good name for a cookbook author, Freoli. Launched Spirited Cooking from the Pacific Northwest, a, a book that, that uh, really kind of shows the creativity of our seasons here and also using the product that you make there at the distillery. But few have access to the uh, artisanal distillery that uh, John has with five varietals, and over 15 award-winning spirits that richly inform their food and cocktail menus over there at the Mischief Restaurant. So uh, if you need a landmark, it's where the old Red Hook Brewery is or was, and then now Theo Chocolate is over there. It's just to the west 
I always think of it as the Terrell dog food plant. <laughs> yeah, but that has been gone for 20 years, is my guess. And they built and that, a beautiful facility. You've got such called, a pretty compound there. What's the big name of the big building? Uh, Fremont Studios. Fremont Studios. Yeah. And they do a lot of filming there. We've done caterings there. Just an amazing yeah, facility. And we're right up against it. You're right up against there. it. But you're separate, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but we have a huge compound there, like you were saying. It's all beautiful wood and uh, ironwork, uh, all done by the owner, uh, mm-hmm. Mike. Very, very talented. But uh, yeah, we have the on-site distillery there. Rooftop bar, huge outside patio, and it's just just a gorgeous place. And speaking it didn't of, didn't start with the restaurant though, did it? No, no. The the distillery itself has been there for about f- almost fourteen years now. I think um, mm-hmm. I helped them open up the restaurant uh, just before the pandemic. Oh, great timing! Yes. We're still there. There's so many of those stories out <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, I, I think literally three days. Yeah. before we shut down. Wow! <laughs> wow! It's great. But, uh, but yeah. It's, so what's it's, your background, John? What, is, what brought um, you to this particular project? Yeah, well, so my background, I'm, I'm from Seattle. I'm, you know, grew up in Federal Way. I've uh, been cooking my entire career, uh, as working career. You know, over the years, I've been able to work with a lot of really cool product. And I've done a lot of things from other styles of cooking. You know, I worked at Ocean Air, which was really cool. We uh, brought in, you know, seafood from all over the world. Yeah. Then I got to a point where I realized how much stuff we have here. <laughs> you know, it's like there's no reason for it. And it's, right. especially during pandemic times where supply chains were just a huge pain. Broken. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, well, there's not, uh, there isn't a lot of reason to go elsewhere for things. We have a lot of stuff in our ba- own backyard and you can still cook different styles of cooking, but using product that's uh, locally found. Uh-huh. A lot of farmers are out here doing really, really cool things now, different things, growing peppers, growing uh, okra, you know, red okra is one of the dishes I have in there with a, a gumbo, uh, a, a local gumbo recipe, if you will, just finding those products and uh, finding the vendors and uh, farmers that are out here. Well, that's what's uh, a beautiful way that you started the book with uh, a salute to all of those wonderful wild ingredients. Yeah. In the Northwest, there's a, there's a lot to work with. There is a lot, yeah. Let's uh, tick off a few of your favorites, uh, Northwest ingredients, because uh, you do have a little segment there on the beginning of the book where you try and identify things that are pretty uniquely Northwest. Like, everyone's got corn. Of course, we have local corn. Everyone's yeah. got corn. Uh, what are some of the things you find unique to the Northwest? The highlight that everyone now loves are the singing nettles. Oh, don't say I, nettles. I mean, everyone uses it. Everyone goes there. You know, as a kid, I just remember hating those things so much. Yeah, as an adult. Tearing out my legs. Yeah, still exactly. hate them. Yep. <laughs> What's your secret? But, uh, I mean, they make a delicious pesto. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> if you're interested should, in that. I should have seen that coming. <laughs> um, but, no, we, we have, you know, great morels, um, you know, un- unfortunately with great burn morels. Fur tips are absolutely amazing in What's food, that? in cocktail. It's those little uh, new growths you find on, like, the Douglas fir. You can find them on cedar trees. You know, it's a very small window, but when you get those, they're, you know, citrusy, kind of an effervescent kind of flavor to them. They go great infusing cocktails or even sprinkling on salads. just gives that extra kind of herbal outdoorsy feel to it it's really nice is it time to harvest them now we just missed it that was about a few weeks ago i think might have been the last one uh, it's just getting too uh, too warm now so then that's what's what, really they get fun too strong or what happens to them if you harvest them later um you're just not gonna they're they're gonna be um 
chewy, not as much flavor out uh-huh. of it. It's not going to be that real citrusy. It'll be a little bit more woody. Uh, so when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about all those specific northwest ingredients, Alaskan king crab, dandelions, dungeness crab, fiddlehead ferns, another one that uh, I have yet to figure out of a way that I personally want to make a dinner out of. I'm looking forward to your suggestions on <laughs> yep. that. Gooseneck barnacles. You have to be a sturdy soul to get sit down to a plate of those. Yep. Uh, kelp, which I love. Uh, there's so much good seaweed in our area. So well, let's talk more and more about some of the Northwest ingredients featured in your book and then how, of course, you use spirits to kind of enhance or embellish them. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Potatoes. She eats potatoes, he eats potatoes, I eat potatoes, we all eat potatoes. Blame it on the goose, got you feeling loose, blame it on the throne, got you feeling gone. Blame it on the alcohol, blame it on the All right, we're back in the hot stove kitchen on Cairo. We're having a good time talking uh, with John Walkie. John is the chef uh, and author of Chef of Mischief Restaurant over there uh, in Fremont at the Mischief Brewing Operation there, right on the canal. So if you, uh, I think the most likely uh, landmark that you're going to know is Theo Chocolate there in the old brick building, the old red building. So just go to the canal from there and take a right or west and uh, you'll come across Mischief uh, Distillery and Restaurant with an outdoor patio and roof bar and all sorts of things and you can even buy his new book called spirited cooking from the pacific northwest uh, which you know there's not too many chefs that have the gumption to put a duck leg on their cover good for you (laughs) people always ask me what's my favorite thing to cook and i always say duck i love cooking duck so duck on some sort of little green waffle looks fabulous (laughs) so tell us about um some some of the northwest ingredients and what you do with them to infuse them with some of the spirits that are at your fingertips. Yeah, so some of our favorites that we use. Um, obviously, we talked about nettles a little bit, but uh, you know we have our uh, fiddlehead ferns, which is getting more and more popular in the foraging world. You know, I think I feel like it's more difficult to find them. The more fun it is because you get to brag about it and show it on social media. Um, functionality, though, you know, dandelion greens are great. Also, in pesto. Uh, Dandelion greens I get more so than I do nettles uh, because they're bitter. I find nettles to be a little bit just too grassy uh, for me, but dandelion have a real flavor profile to them. Yeah, uh, nettles can be a good one to, I mean, it's it's an easy transition if you don't want to use spinach. You you can kind of trans... Transcribe that one, uh, or just bulk things up. You know, even if you're doing a basil one, you can fold in some of those nettles in there. It, it does give it a little bit of a more earthy, but also kind of a citrusy kind of feel to it as well. Fur tips we t- um, we were talking about earlier. Uh, you know, that's a great one for infusing in cocktails. Uh, one of the items in the book there is uh, the f- uh, fur tip vesper, and what I like to do is infuse it in vodka. You can either soak it. Um, for a couple weeks to get that flavor. What I like to do is actually puree it in there and then strain it through a coffee filter, and it gets that nice, bright green, really flavorful. Um, that's one you want to use right away, though, if you're going to puree it in there, so that way it keeps that nice, beautiful color. Mm-hmm. And doing a vodka uh, gin lay kind of Vesper with that, absolutely beautiful, nice presentation. Now, when you do that on vodka, say, you're using the Mischief Vodka, mm-hmm. are you using a finished vodka product, or are you using the more like the grain alcohol 
product? Like, how strong is your base? For that one, we don't go too strong. Um, so, it, 80 proof? It, yeah, an 80 proof. Um, usually, we only use that higher stuff if we're doing, say, like making our own bitters um, or something that we want to do a very, very quick infusion because um, it's going to be very, very stringent. Hot. Yeah, hot. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever go to cross the street to Theo's and get some coffee beans to work with? Oh, we uh, the, cacao, uh, cacao, I said cacao, yeah. yeah, cacao beans. Um, yeah, definitely. We work with them a lot. Um, we actually do, at our in our tasting room when we're doing uh, our uh, tastings, we have a little dish of chocolate to pair with. Um, but we use uh, a lot of their uh, cocoa powder, uh, use their cacao um, nibs and stuff for our uh, bitters that we make there. Um, so we try to utilize that. Even some of the desserts we have on the menu is uh, using their products. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of collaboration with other restaurants and. Uh, local people that we we like all right tell us more about your menu then uh what's going on right now this particular season it's summer getting in last night summer. i sat on my deck and watched the sun go down at the latest point it's going to go down this year it made me happy and sad at the same time yeah no it, it's it's great um it's always nice to change the season when like new menu items are coming along i think uh some of the audience members got to try that watermelon sangria uh, which is currently on the menu you know uh, making making all those little transitions we 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 try and uh, make sure that our cocktail menu is a great reflection of our food menu as far as seasonality and uh, cross-utilization. You know, we'll be doing a, a watermelon salad on the menu. But, uh, yeah, just, just kind of trying to utilize all those products. And as different things come up uh, with farmers, you know, heading to the farmer's markets to kind of keep an eye on the seasons and times of seasons as they seem to change a lot every year. You made a little plate for the audience with some interesting tastes on it. I'm sorry, the listeners can't see it, but uh, what is this wonderful assortment? Yeah, so I just brought a couple things in. One of the things that we really focus on is uh, utilizing different types of preservation, uh, especially because we are seasonal. You want to get things fresh. If you don't use it all, things can go turn on you really, really quick. So we do a lot of pickling, a lot of fermenting, a lot of curing. Um, so what you got here is a, a lot of different pickles that we do, uh, you know, and it, you can really pickle anything. It's we got some blueberries, some vinegar on it. Well, so the blueberries and the garlic, we do a lacto ferment first, um, oh. so salt water, uh, and let that sit for a while. It, it'll it'll um, start pickling it. Then we add a little bit of uh, is that vinegar it? Just in there. Salt water. Salt water. That's that's how you do a, a good okay. lacto ferment on there. Um, but yeah, we got bulk help. Um, which is very obviously popular now. We got lots of different seaweeds here, and I think that's probably one of the most recognizable and approachable for a lot of our customers. Blueberries, those know, are the all, fattest all blueberries of, I've ever seen. Those are fat blueberries. <laughs> the fiddleheads are on there, so everyone can try the fiddleheads. Uh, I was uh, in, in strolling through your book. Uh, there's so many delicious sounding things. Of course, all the local seafoods. The bull kelp was really fun. It comes in little rings, you know, and you slice across the stalk. Yeah. But the one that kind of struck me as funny was the, I wasn't sure if it was a dessert or a or a savory item, and it's the bourbon apple camembert crisp with garlic caramel sauce. And I didn't know just how crazy you were if you were going to serve that with, with some sort of sweet corn ice cream for dessert. Or, I mean, or, uh, there is a recipe for that as well, yeah. This is literally looks like a crisp that you would make for a dessert all summer long, but my guess is it's perfect with... Uh, a barbecue roast pork or something of that nature. A- absolutely. It, it's one of those things on the menu that you can really order it at any point in your uh, visit. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it, it's, I, I really like to incorporate those savory flavors in there. 
Um, but it, that one is one of my favorites. I've been doing that one for years. Uh, I've done the uh, the garlic caramel whiskey, uh, whiskey sauce on there uh-huh. just to mess, just to mess with people's minds a little <laughs> yeah. bit. You know, you got. Well, you that's what I was that. curious. Is it more of a mind uh, mess? I was almost said the wrong word. Or is it? Uh, is it? It really is something that you are super proud of the taste and. It just goes uh, with everything, right? No, it's a super proud of taste. I mean, you know, it's the apple and cheese combo. I mean, it's it's absolutely classic. Mm-hmm. But giving it that overly sweet and then savory components in the middle of the sweet, it's it's just a fun dish. It it, it plays with your taste buds a bit, but yeah. And if there was one recipe in this book, the, again, the book is called Spirited Cooking from the Pacific Northwest. Chef John Walkie, W-A-H-L-K-E. One recipe you'd tell people to kind of get started with, which also explains your passion about the food in the book. I really enjoy making soups. Um, it's one soup. of my favorite things. It's very easy to play around with. One thing I like to stress to people when, when doing any cookbook, and especially this one, is that you don't. it's not a specific you need to follow these instructions. It's something to base your recipe on, create it yourself. If you don't have this, try and add that. And soups are perfect for doing that at home. You know, you can substitute things very, very easily without messing everything up. Um, we have a couple of great ones in there, and, and we do a lot of soups at the um, restaurant. We did a Soupocalypse this year, which mm-hmm. was a big collaboration with about 14 restaurants in Fremont. It was a walking was a soup tour, right? walking soup tour, so... I, I said, I said, take the soup uh, recipes out of that book and uh, have fun with it. Try, try them out. The book looks fabulous. Spirited cooking from the Pacific Northwest. Chef John Walkie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, uh, it's pesto for your party on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven-three FM. <laughs> Well, I opened a shop to make some sauce. Now people call me the pesto boss. I make the best you've ever seen. It's rich and creamy, bright and green. There's always a line outside the door. People yell and they all want more. They'd be happy with just a drop. Where's this madness? You gotta stop. Oh, pesto, pesto, bright and green. You're the sauce that fills my dreams. Now daylight and in between. I'm Tom Douglas, Pam Hinkley, and Chef John Walkie in the kitchen here at the hot stove. Uh, and Pam, you're insistent. You know, when I first made pesto, I didn't know anything about it. 18-year-old from the East Coast walking through the Pike Place Market, and there's Pasqualina Verde, that that feisty old Italian lady yes. from the Garlic Gulch and down in the Kent Valley, I believe. And uh, there she is, like, uh, just singing away and... Uh, has a big mound of flat leaf big Italian parsley, mound. which I don't think I had ever seen. I'd only seen the curly parsley. And then, of course, the huge mound of uh, sweet Genoa basil and was uh, basically selling it to everyone. That's when vegetables ruled way more than flowers did in the Pike Place market. Yes, we miss those days. Uh, so she told me at that point, it's one quarter flat leaf parsley, three quarters basil. Uh, I've been making it that way ever since, and it's delicious. And now you want to move on. You're, you're a fickle soul, you. <laughs> well, we've been talking on the show a lot about using all parts of your vegetables and not letting anything in the refrigerator go to waste. So the more I dug into really what is pesto, its heritage is with basil. But the thing that really brings it together is olive oil being the base that you could put just about any 
green in and nut and uh, garlic, salt. I mean, it, it has so many possibilities. And so I became obsessed with using up my parsley stems as a, as a way to go, but it, it still needed a, a little bit more. So you've got I'm to... I'm always amazed when I listen, <laughs> when I listen to her speak. <laughs> This is all driven by your parsley stems. Yes. Okay. I wanted to use up the stems. All right. Because by the, if you're really going to add... And you I mean, Chef John just about fell off his chair when he said that. But if you've got all the nuts, if you're going to use a nut, if you're going to use a beautiful parm, and you've got an extra virgin olive oil that is a glory unto itself, does it really matter what the green is? John, <laughs> I, I will agree with you and say yeah. it doesn't, of course, as long as it tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's nice to have a little bit of, uh, you know, some bitterness in there. I think the biggest thing you got to be careful with is uh, using something that can make it taste a little too woody. Yeah. You know? Stems or <laughs> but you said like parsley yeah. stems. <laughs> like parsley stems. <laughs> but you uh, earlier said nettles. Yeah, I'd make a beautiful pesto. Yeah, I, I think those work really, really nice. I mean, it's it's one of those things where you got. I mean, obviously, got to blanch it to get rid of that sting to it. But what I like to do is blanch those, and you just shock them in cold water, and then squeeze out all the water out of there. I mean, and that's something you can freeze, so if you're not going to use all of it, you can make later. Um, so can I stop it, you for one really second? Because well, yeah. we're not talking about just nettles here. You can do that with a lot of pea vines. Yeah, yeah, you can do it yeah. with all sorts of just yeah. so that people are. Yeah. People like me that are turned off to nettles uh, can be thinking <laughs> along with your process of, of doing whatever. Yeah. You can literally do collard greens and peanuts as a pesto. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different things. Yeah, it's, it's very interchangeable. Right, right now, we, we were doing a flatbread at work uh, with the dandelion at, mm-hmm. um, greens. Um, but yeah, that nice bitterness is, adds a lot to it, if, especially if, you, and if you're going to cut it with any, say, if you want to keep basil in there and have that kind of back flavor, you can cut that and bulk it and just kind of change that flavor profile a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, you, you now love the parsley-basil combo. I always have because the idea is it's bitter parsley with sweet basil. I mean, the, it's really more of a balancing act. To go with the lemon and the toasted pine nuts. She also almost always used walnuts because pine nuts weren't very available at the moment, right? So she would always suggest walnuts as your nut of choice in her classic Genovese, as my guess, basil pesto. I I saw the website I was looking at uh, is Spruce Eats. I don't know if you reference that, but it's a wonderful uh, recipe resource and. They were going crazy with all different kinds of nuts. The walnuts, cashews, and sunflower seeds, which I always have salty sunflower seeds around, of course. Uh, so that, uh, they, and they each have their own distinct flavor to balance the greens. So I, I think having a nut component is important. What about moving into things uh, that aren't, say, greens? I mean, we can go all the way from doing... Carrots with carrot top pesto yep. to uh, artichoke pesto, where you're just taking the blanched artichoke hearts, pureeing them with a, a something else, another nut of toasted almonds, whatever that could be. Do you ever mix vegetables, uh, John, when you are making pestos? I mean, I like like you were saying, I've, I've done the carrot top one, stuff like that, but not really the. I never called it pesto if you're taking the vegetable itself and kind of pureeing uh, doing it, yeah. that thing. But um, yeah, there's no reason. 
same idea. Yeah, same idea. Yeah. I, um, as a side note, in a new cookbook that I have, they made a, a carrot pesto, but then also fried some of the greens, some of the carrot tops. But it, I tried it, and they just broke up and fell apart. Have you ever had success with crisping up the carrot tops? I mean, it's at that point you're not gonna even if you're putting it on stuff like that, you're not gonna get that crunch out of the leaf. That's what I want. No, it's, it's always nice. You, 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 it used to be big to do the uh, like fried piece of basil or basil sage. or sage, yeah. Yeah. exactly. But you know that just dissolves and crumbles on pretty much anything you put it on, especially if it's warm. Um, so it's, it's more novelty, I think, at that point. But I'm not gonna waste the, my time on that. Well, the problem is it tastes anything. a lot like the deep fryer. I mean, you have yeah. this beautiful fresh herb and then all of a sudden you've made it taste a little bit like the deep fryer so uh that's the problem in my mind with deep frying that kind of you know when you go into things like parsnip chips where you're actually taking a more solid uh vegetable and frying it then it, it keeps its its uh texture better as far as i'm concerned yeah and taste for a while you were freezing pesto in ice cube trays right do you still do that of course and curry paste and all you know like a homemade curry Absolutely. paste works beautiful for that uh, i you know Pesto is a funny thing. It's, it's delicious right now. It's hard for me to put it away. When I make a frozen pesto, I tend to use it in something else where I don't feature it as the, yeah. the main ingredient. So if I'm making minestrone, say, I will pull out an ice cube of basil pesto right before it's finished yes. and stir it in. And I like the way that, you know, that it comes back to life in the soup. But if I want pesto linguine, I probably don't pull out my brick of pesto for that. It's just there's a deadness that happens when it gets frozen that uh, is just not the head doesn't have the life of the party flavor that fresh basil pesto and lemon does. But could does that make you, sense what I'm saying? Yes. But could you brighten it? Because I've seen recommendations for putting the base away without finishing it with the acid. Yeah, sometimes it's uh, not put away with cheese in it and sometimes with the nuts. But I don't see, uh, particularly if you're not going to use it as its own star ingredient, if you're using it with other things, um, I don't see any reason to not finish it off in the, you know, in, before you freeze it. Yeah. I think the biggest draw for that one is in the winter months when you're just in need of that kind of freshness and yeah. stuff, and you throw in a, a pesto and like, oh, okay, we're, we can get through winter to... There's still <laughs> flavor out there. Coming. Yeah, that kind of thing, but... yeah. To be clear, pesto is right now. Uh, within within yeah. a week or two, it's going to be too hot, and all the basil is going to bolt. And if it hasn't already, as pesto is really something that is best right now, or again in the fall when it's cooled down again. So when it gets too hot, uh, your pesto, like arugula pesto, some of those things can get too bitter, and um, you don't want to be adding sugar and things to no. kind of to balance them out. I'm going for it. I made spiralized zucchini. And basil, and basil pesto last week for team lunch at Pike and Western, and they flipped out. And so I think basil pesto still rules. I'm glad we brought you around. Yeah, I think I think there has been a conversion. I'm going to stop nannering on about my parsley stems. Uh, you know, and to, to be clear, also a lot of I watch a lot of people pick basil leaves off the stems, and honestly, just to make pesto. Uh, Honestly, if you just feel the bottom of the stems, and I think John alluded to it feel? earlier, no, uh, feel. Oh, I, I was the like the bottom of the stems and see if they're woody or not. If they're not woody, 
the stem and everything can go in your pesto. Yeah. I, I just don't like watching people throw away all that goodness. It's, if you taste it separately, it's like a cilantro stem, right? If you taste it separately, I mean, there's nobody in Chinatown that's throwing away cilantro stems. It's only us that are doing it. We're picking the little leaves off. Uh, but if you go to Viet, you know Vietnamese restaurant and have pho or something, it's full stem cilantro. Same with basil. See, there you we can, are with the stems again. If you <laughs> you got to use them. Well, if you want, I mean, don't you think, John? Yeah. Unless they're woody, it's, there's really yeah. If they're getting same too big, same with chives or garlic uh, scapes or whatever. You know, unless it's woody, you use the whole thing. Nice. Well, thank you for indulging me on pesto. I appreciate it. You're welcome. When we come back, it's time for our tasty food challenge called Food for Thought Tasty Trivia, uh, brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia right here on the Hot Stove Society Show. Our audience is distracted and is not clapping for us. Uh, once again, if you enjoyed uh, John Wolke's uh, segment there, you can buy his book, Spirited Cooking from the Pacific Northwest, either over at the restaurant slash distillery, or I'm sure it's online, or at one of the lovely bookstores like the Book Larder. Support your local bookstore, right? We love the Book Larder. Our Tasty Trivia is brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Blends, constructed to inspire you to season your meals creatively. They mix and match with your proteins and veggies. Doesn't matter what's on the label. Just use the flavor profile that you like. I did an event at the Made in Washington store down in the Pike Place Market oh, last week. Oh, how'd that go? The big one the big that everyone loved was the veggie rub. Of course. One that you inspired. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Steak rub is fine on, uh, fabulous on potatoes. The taco spice is great on ruby chard. That's what was on your chard here today. And uh, Made in Washington for the rest of this month is featuring our entire product line, which doesn't happen very often, where people oh. take all 25 of our different SKUs. So you can find them in Alderwood Mall, Bellevue Square, Pike Place Market, uh, fun little stores. And a not very well-known fact is I catered the opening of Made in Washington almost 40 years ago. But you're just a spring puppy. How could yeah, that be? exactly. Funny how that is. Okay, Pam, tell us how to play the game and who is going to be our victim this week. Well, I would like our guests from Chicago to introduce themselves, please. Uh, I'm Katrina Meadows from Chicago. And I'm Leah. I'm oh, Leah. We're so and we're waiting excited. on your pops to come and help you too, right? Yeah, he's parking the car again. All right. Leah did let loose that these guys are trivia experts. I'm not. They are. She's going to be great. Yeah, exactly. So who else do we have here? Uh, I don't recognize her. We have the talented director of Hot Stove Society, an incredible cook and spectacular woman, Annie Elmore. Wow. Quite an introduction. (laughs) So each of the contestants gets five questions, and um, somebody's going to get the most right, and the winner will probably be somebody from Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) And they get to go shopping in our gift shop uh, for free. Three, Three jars of spice. 
or free uh, at the end of this for standing up to the mic. Yeah, for Leah. She didn't want to do it, so she doesn't really get the spice rub. <laughs> She's good. All right, let's get, get this rolling. Annie, let's start with you. All right. A leafy vegetable native to the Mediterranean, along with other cabbage species, began appearing in northern Europe during the 5th century and a few hundred years later became closely associated with a major European city on the Seine. Today, their name continues to reference that city. What is that vegetable in the cabbage family? Starts with a B. Broccoli? Brussels sprouts? Brussels sprouts, yay! Are you giving that to her? She said yes. broccoli first. No, but she got to Brussels sprouts, so yes. That's oh. what I meant to say the second oh time. My God. <laughs> Number two, a staple of baking known for its malleability and thickness, what almond-based confection is commonly used in decorative cake competitions to create figurines or other complex designs? In the lot pan? Yay! <laughs> Number three, what common household protein is a main ingredient in tempura paint? Uh, keep it, um, it might come from chickens. <laughs> Feet? Eggs, eggs. Eggs, 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 eggs. Prepared since the imperial era. What Chinese dish What do you mean Annie's tenure here is the imperial <laughs> What Chinese dish is served with a meat characterized by a thin crisp often eaten with spring onion, cucumber, hoisin sauce and pancakes? Can you repeat the question? <laughs> Peking duck is my guess. The answer is Peking duck. I think he's giving you that uh, one. Four for four. Nice I love job. this. Uh, number five, a baked Alaska dessert is, unsurprisingly, a baked dessert made of ice cream that is covered in what other sweet? Meringue. Yay! She's going to be hard to beat today. Nice job. Okay, we have the victims from Chicago. Oh, welcome. Number one, sriracha is a type of popular hot sauce named for a city located in what country that starts with a T. Thailand? Yes. <laughs> Number two. I know you can do it. What? <laughs> what is the name of the type of icing frequently used to decorate cakes because it is thicker and less runny than a standard icing? Uh, royal icing? Close. Another name that might start with an F. Oh, fondant? Yes. <laughs> Known mainly for spreading a specific type of food... What Massachusetts-born 19th-century man was also fond of spreading religion throughout the country on his journeys? Johnny Appleseed. Yeah! Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> Johnny Appleseed is correct. Uh, number four, Toblerone got its name from founder Theodore Tobler and Taroni, the Italian word for what crackly confection found in each bar. <laughs> Nougat? Nougat? Yes. Nougat. Annie, they are giving you a run I for money. Look at Tom. He's I'm terrified. He's terrified. Look at his face. And finally, the condiment typically known as Thousand Island dressing and occasionally referred to on fast food menus as special sauce is in fact named for the Thousand Island region, which exists along the border of what two countries? Canada? Yep. And the United States. Yay! 
wonderful showing. <laughs> they, they are very smart people in Chicago. Thank, yeah. you. Thank you for playing. Tom Douglas? Yes. The simple rum and coke cocktail is also known by what two-word name that contains the name of an island nation? The Bahama Cruise. <laughs> You're throwing it away, I can tell. Cuba Libre. When commercially produced, what is the dairy product that must contain no less than 18% milk fat before bulking agents are added and must have a total acidity of no less than 0.5%? Creme fraiche is one type of this dairy product. Sour cream. Yay! <laughs> Number three. Uh, with a dough enriched with eggs and butter and studded with fruit, what sweet cylindrically shaped Italian bread Anatone. is <laughs> Yes, it is. We had some good ones this year. This we? year we yeah. scored. What is the name of the oldest producer of chocolate in the U.S.? The company was founded in Boston in 1765 and is still in operation. New England Candy Company. Coincidentally, the company's name came from its founder's surname, but it is still quite appropriate for the Mars Bar. The Baker Chocolate Company. The Baker Chocolate Company. And finally, foie gras is a luxury food product made from one specific organ of a duck or goose. What does the this two-word French name translate to in English? I don't know the exact translation, but it's duck liver or goose liver. Um, the liver of a goose. Um, <laughs> it, it's fat. Fat yeah, liver. Yeah, that's why sometimes fat people liver. call me foie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, today's winner, our fabulous family from Chicago! Yay, congratulations! Can't win if you don't play, Leah. That's a life lesson you I learned at the you, Hot Stove Show today. If you want to be part of the show, you can join our community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas and Co. Also, remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. The show is produced admirably by Pamela Inkley. Sean McFadden is our fabulous technical director, and our talented Cairo editor is Sean. Please don't call me Del Torre. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Vinegar, vinegar, vinegar.